0: Today, I'm talking about the coaching habit, written by Michael Bungay Steinier. I'm thinking about this episode a little bit like a book club where I'm just sharing my thoughts and feelings about this book on coaching. I think it's really important that if you buy this book, it's critical to remember that this is about coaching. Leaders sometimes are coaches, sometimes are mentors and sometimes are both. I'm generally in roles where I'm doing both roles. I'm both mentoring and coaching. And so just, if you're not sure, like, what what does she mean? What's the difference between coaching and mentoring? So think of it like a sports coach. When someone is teaching somebody how to play soccer and coaching them in soccer, they probably know how to play soccer, right? Like soccer is accessible to most people, but coaches are often either coaching an an age range that they're not part of or they are coaching uh, athletes that are at at their peak. and and sometimes coaches are former athletes. the That big distinction of of a coach versus, say, a mentor is that it's about. You're no longer doing, or you're not focused on doing, and you're really focused on telling somebody how to be their best and and helping them to be their best. This book is, is really about the questions to ask in order to help someone as a coach. In the workplace, there's, as leaders, times when you lead somebody that doesn't work on the same type of things that you work on. Mentoring, on the other hand, is when, you know, you're really in it, you're still involved. Mentoring, for me, it's often about, I still code. And so, when I'm mentoring engineers, I'm talking to them and showing them potentially examples or, oh, you know, I would probably approach this this way. And I would think about it this way. I think it's just important to keep that in mind, that coaching... And coaching skills that leaders often have to be mentors as well. And that if you read this, you you should keep that in mind that it's okay to do more than just ask questions. It's okay to also give advice and give strategies and show examples and pair with a person, work together with a person. Early in the book, he mentions that it's really important to ask one question at a time, just one question at a time. Now, I put a little note to myself here of, duh, because to me, this is super obvious. But I I totally get that this might not be obvious to everybody. It really is important that you ask one question at a time. It is very hard for some people to have those awkward silences. And I really learned from a mentor when I was at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard that There's a lot of power in having those silences, those pauses, and she would use those pauses often kind of in the way that like Ruth Bader Ginsburg would use them, making sure to correctly form her thoughts before saying them out loud. It also gives the person, in this case that you're trying to coach, an opportunity to think about it. In the first chapter, he opens talking about the importance of a good opening line. And he gives an example, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And then another example, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then another example, did it hurt when you fell from heaven? My knee-jerk reaction to that is, is just kind of ick. Like, it just made me wonder, did any women proofread this book? Offer advice about that specific line? I don't know. I would definitely advise saying that line to me. <laughs> you know, part of it is that this feels like a really work-related book, and yet that's a very out-of-work and maybe even inappropriate-for-work kind of conversation to have. One of the questions that he starts with is, what's on your mind? There's a lot of evidence that his researcher, Lindsay, pulled up about why it's a valuable question. He showed the example of how Facebook has used this for a long time, and they briefly went away from it, and they came back to it. I think that it might be good to shake this up a bit. Like, maybe ask this from time to time in a coaching session. But maybe also, you could ask, what have you been thinking about? What's going on? What matters most to you right now? Because I worry that this question could lead to irrelevant conversations, like the Super Bowl. Maybe those are relevant. Maybe those person-to-person connection conversations. I just know that if someone was asking me what's on my mind, I'd probably be telling them about stress that's happening in my personal life. One of his other questions is, and what else? I really liked this part where he wrote, what would happen if you added just one more option? Should we do this or this or not? This is from research that the results are startling. Having at least one more option lowers the failure rate by almost half. So rather than having a binary choice, you can lower the failure of a decision by almost half, down to about 30%, if you add just one more choice. But you can certainly go too far with this. If you ask, and what else, and what else, and what else, potentially following this off from what's on your mind, you could just end up having too many options. Then you have analysis paralysis, which he does touch on in this book as well. So I think that what's important here is that you have to realize that there's a balance. There's having too many options, but there's also having too few options. And this section is really talking about how too few options can be detrimental. A neuroscience example that he brought up that was from Barry Schwartz, author of The Paradox of Choice* is that when there was a jam sampling at a store, consumers that went to the table that had 24 types of jam, they loved it. It was a much more popular table versus a table with six flavors. But the table with six flavors were 10 times more likely to actually buy the jam. Obviously, for the store or the jam manufacturers, buying the jam is the critical thing. So that overwhelm of 24 flavors created decision-making paralysis which relates to what I had just said. An example of using the question, and what else, the author wrote about when having a weekly check-in, maybe asking what's important right now, that then you can, quote-unquote, keep the pressure on by asking, and what else. My note here is that maybe keeping the pressure on isn't always a good idea. Yes, from time to time, ask uncomfortable questions. That is critical for growth. Me being asked uncomfortable questions helps me grow. Me asking my team, the people I mentor, the people I coach uncomfortable questions does help them. You want to avoid making someone consistently uncomfortable. They're not going to want to be in that place. They are not going to thrive in that place. They are going to be really stressed. It's going to ruin your psychological safety. I think that he's right in that this is valuable, but I think that you need to use it very carefully. He brought up a model that I hadn't heard of before called the 3P model. Concept is challenges or issues usually resolve around a project, a person, or a pattern of behavior. It almost feels like how story writing has, you know, the person versus person, person versus the environment, story archetypes. So this framework has, has come up with archetypes for challenges that people face. One bit of research that this book brought up that was uncovered by their researcher, Lindsay, is that there was a study where if students were given a chance to retake a test... Specifically, a true or false test that they performed better if they got a second pass, if they had written down their original answers and they had, they were able to look at the original answers and the group performed better than a group of students who did not have a copy of their answers. Again, talking about focus, my concern about that original question and how just asking, you know, what's on your mind could bring up things that are not necessarily relevant to work. Again, it can be important at times to be talking about things that are going on outside of work, but there's also time that you need to focus on work and you need to help somebody improve what they're working on and get over the hurdles that they're facing. One of the questions that he talks about later is, what's the real challenge here for you? I think that this is really kind of again, a focusing earlier. There was that and what else where it was like maybe defocusing and it was getting a bigger picture and getting more options. Whereas here it's like, let's, let's narrow this down. Like maybe a monologue <laughs> was produced in some of the earlier questions that happened in the session. This is a way to try to whittle that monologue down to something that is manageable. Another question he talks about is, what was most useful here for you? And I think that even, in, even for myself, just asking myself this is really useful. It's been my experience that I learn better when I teach. Learning, doing, reading, observing, those have different levels of success for me in terms of learning and retaining information, but that what was most useful here for you? You know, that question can help really define what what was it I learned here and try to have it placed in my mind in a different way, framed differently in my mind so that I keep it. And similarly, as a coach, this is something that can be really helpful for you. You know, if somebody just solved a, a big problem, a big challenge. What was the most useful thing that they learned when they solve that challenge. What are they going to take from it? And again, maybe if they try teaching it, it might stick even better in their mind. And in fact, having this as a conversation, they are teaching you, the coach, what was most useful. There was another study that Lindsay had turned up that was interesting. It was from 1997, and it was about... When given math problems, people were more likely to be able to solve the math problem if it included the word you. So like researchers found that when the word you was present, the questions needed to be repeated fewer times and the problems were solved in a shorter amount of time, adding that for you. So I think this finding relates to other psychology research I've seen where thinking of the problem as an in-group problem probably triggers more buy-in and so here like you are the most ultimate of the in-group right you know an in-group can be you see yourself as a soccer fan so soccer other soccer fans are in your in-group if you're an american and you're watching the mexican women's team play you might not relate to their fans because you're thinking of yourself as a u.s fan There's an acronym that the author brings up called TERA, T-E-R-A. It talks about how when somebody asks for something or brings you a question, that there are these four letters that stand for things to think about. The T is for tribe. Is this person in my in-group? Kind of like what I was saying earlier. Then another is, the next letter is E for expectation. That's thinking about what the future is going to be like. Do I know the future? Don't I know the future? And when what's going to happen next is clear, it feels safe. If you're unsure what's going to happen in the future, it feels dangerous. And so you might avoid helping or answering the question. Again, similar to T tribe, like if this person isn't in your in-group, you know, you might be less open. And R is for rank. And so this is kind of a relative rank based on their definition, where it's talking about, are you in this very moment, higher ranked or lower ranked than me? So it it might not even be that like a rank in a company or an age or where somebody is in, in the grade. It could be, yeah, like the person is in many ways, quote unquote, lower ranked, but is really good at such and such and is bringing that whatever it is, thing to bear. And then the final letter in the acronym, A, is for autonomy. That, I think, again, relates a lot to buy-in, where it's, do I get a say or don't I? That lack of control can make you feel helpless, make you feel like you don't want to engage. But if you feel like you have some autonomy, then you might have more buy-in. And the summary of what they're saying, what the author's saying here is that it's your job as the coach to increase the terror quotient as, as much as possible for when you're having these conversations. I think that he's using different words here, but the essence of this is he's talking about the importance of building psychological safety. Again, he's not saying psychological safety at all. I think even in this book, Terra is basically a framework that I think relates very strongly to psychological safety. And it's definitely important for a coach to have. Another question that they get into is what is our winning aspiration? And at a company that I I worked at in the past, we were often saying, what is our North Star? What are those guiding principles? What is it that we're... Trying to do with our product or service that is going to make our customers succeed, that is going to make us succeed, that is going to make our group succeed, our company succeed, our product, our service succeed. Understanding that North Star can really give you a vision or maybe even a mission of what to focus on. How do you get closer to that North Star? He talks about the importance of making sure that the person you're coaching knows that you listened and heard what they said. You're asking for their time and attention. That active listening is really critical. Again, this book is a lot about coaching. It's a lot about asking questions and, and only asking one question at a time, and giving them the opportunity to answer, and not spending that time thinking about the next thing you're going to say, because you might need to respond. You might need that information in order to continue the conversation. You know, also as a human, you, person you're coaching really wants to be heard. They want to know that you've listened to them, you understand them, maybe you'll act on what, what you've heard, and maybe you won't, but at least you've heard. And, and that is really powerful. Like it is very powerful for a customer who's had a bad experience to be heard, even if the person hearing can't make a change, can't fix the problem that the customer had. He goes back kind of on that learning question and talks about how the act of creating and sharing your connections to new and presented ideas are critical. Like I agree with that. To some extent, the reason I'm recording this specific episode is because not only did I take notes on the book, but if I make this recording, which has a potential of teaching people, maybe nobody's listening to this podcast, which is totally fine. In my attempt to teach, I know that I learn things better when I teach, and thus, I expect that these lessons will stick with me better. There's a quote in here that says, reflection is a form of practice, and... I made a note because in software development, we have a thing called a retrospective where we look back on a given set of work or a given time frame of work and try to think about what went well, what didn't go well, what should we change, and what should we start doing, what should we stop doing. That formalized meeting that we use in software development is a form of reflection. The author talks about how he uses an app called I Done This to write down things that he did. And I think especially when you're new to a role, that can be super useful. I remember my first job out of college, I had a notebook where I would write what I was working on. And partly it was just so that I felt like I was actually doing something and contributing to the company and hopefully earning my paycheck. It was for me to help hype me up and show me that I was providing value to the company, to the customer. So he has this quote that rather than just writing out what I did, he writes down a sentence or two about what he learned and what he's most proud of. My note for this is, you know, I was, was talking about retrospectives earlier and engineering, and this actually might be a really good practice for engineering managers, leaders in engineering organizations, such as myself, because sometimes our learnings aren't shared in retrospectives. Sometimes there are things that we learn on the job that we can't share and we can't talk about because they could involve privileged information they could involve things relating to an employee that one point that the author made that I think was based on research is that questions work just as well when they're typed as they do when they're spoken. And I think this is important for a lot of people to think about. Different people communicate differently. I remember when I first got out of college, we almost never used email. Then over time, like over the next five to 10 years, email became really an important part of the kind of work that I was doing. Now it feels like we've come back around where most of the written communication is happening in more like long-term document stores, things like Google Docs or wikis. And then also communication is often happening in, in messaging systems, whether they're Discord or Slack or actual texts. And I think that to some extent, that's a, th- a thing that's changed with generations We've just evolved and had to adapt. For people that are better at typing questions, it's important to realize that those questions are going to work as well as spoken. If you're an introvert and you don't feel comfortable talking, then it's okay to type it out, and that also might help you get your message across. On the flip side, if you don't like typing, if you don't like writing, if you feel more eloquent speaking you have that opportunity as well. A little later on, there's this quote about, I've scanned your email in a sentence or two. What do you want? And so, you know, he's giving this advice of maybe you just got a really long email and you don't want to read the whole thing because you're just overwhelmed or you've got a lot going on. Maybe you have like 200 employees. Like, I don't know. You scan it and then it's like, okay, well, the TLDR, the too long don't reply version of this. And then another quote he said to potentially use is, before I jump into a longer reply, let me ask you, what's the real challenge here for you? Similar to what I was just saying, I don't actually get a ton of email these days, like a ton of email, especially from people that I coach and mentor. Usually, the coaching and mentoring is happening in meetings. I do occasionally, whether it's email or Slack or Discord, where I do get a lot more messages, I, I worry that these questions are going to make the asker, the questioner, the person being coached, feel unheard. I definitely would caution you about when you use this and why you use this because this could hurt the psychological safety that you have hopefully built with the person that you're saying this to. That is my notes on the coaching habit. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and you should definitely check out the book. I bought it through Barnes and Noble, which seems to be the only place that you can get an ebook version, and I really prefer reading ebooks over over print books. I usually buy my books on Kobo, but this one was available on Barnes and Noble. You can also definitely buy it on print. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to the Practical Leadership Cast. Please subscribe, rate and share the podcast. Become part of the conversation by joining our Discord server. The opening music is Like a Prism by Maya Jisama. The closing song is Something About You by Marilyn Ford. Until next time, goodbye. There's something, there's something about